Welcome to the Rise Up Podcast, the podcast all about empowering women's careers, hosted by me, Susan Dwyer. Each week, I share insights with you from women with different backgrounds, experiences, and learnings. We discuss career-defining moments that led them to where they are today, giving you a unique insight into what actually goes on behind the scenes. Get ready for some candid conversations about leadership, entrepreneurship, failure, confidence, and more. This week for our season three finale episode, I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Sarah Cunningham. Sarah is the MD of the World Wellbeing Movement. She's an organizational leader, behavioral scientist, and a future of work strategist. This was such an interesting conversation. We talk about Sarah's personal journey with wellbeing. We talk about her own recent career pivot and advice to others looking to embrace change. We also cover well-being at work and what does this actually look like and the different components of this. And we also touch on the importance of belonging and connection, both in life and at work, and why this is so important for our overall happiness. I hope you enjoy. Sarah, welcome to the Rise Up Podcast. Thank you so much, Susan. It's it's wonderful to be here and I appreciate the invite. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. Yes, um, my husband and I relatively recently moved house, so we're enjoying oh, wow. living in a, in a new area, um, which is lovely. <laughs> oh, very exciting. So, right, let's get stuck into things. And I suppose to give us a bit of context in terms of where you are today, it would be helpful if you could give us a little bit of insight into your background and what's kind of led you to where you are today? I started out my career initially, actually, I I very much include when I was studying for my undergraduate degree in the 1990s, I worked in the call centers um, and I learned a huge amount, particularly about customer support um, during those, those early years of my career. I then moved into management consultancy um initially working as a graduate for Accenture um, and over the years uh, my career um, took various pivots along the way so um, I've worked in management consultancy I've worked in marketing I've worked in innovation management and immediately before my prior role I worked in an organizational leadership role um, so I've been really lucky I've got to work for companies like Accenture, Capgemini, Google and um, MasterCard, I spent nine years in MasterCard um, before quite a dramatic pivot, actually. I, I, I did a, a master's degree during the pandemic in psychological and behavioral science at LSE. Um, and it was through that um, I, I really wasn't expecting a career pivot when I did that. I studied that out of interest. Um, but what actually happened was a bit of a dramatic career change. And I now lead um, the World Wellbeing Movement, which is a not-for-profit social impact organization. Wow, a lot, um, a very interesting and diverse or dynamic career, should I say. And tell me, like, of all the years you spent working in, in corporate, um, was there any kind of key learnings or what kind of, caused you then to, to 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 study to do the study during uh, the pandemic or can you shed a bit of light on that I think at some point in life you reflect perhaps on the earlier part of your life so my most recent job prior to joining the world wildbeing movement 
I was effectively in a site lead role in, in MasterCard in Dublin. So I was part of Dublin's senior leadership team, had a, a very strong focus on employee well-being. And I, like many leaders, I could never have imagined when I stepped into that role that I would play a key role in supporting the well-being of, of, of my colleagues through the pandemic. And I think it was during that time that I really saw that workplace stress in so many companies across the world is increasing. And I was partnering with some brilliant leaders um, looking at what initiatives we were going to roll out to improve workplace well-being. And I got to work with and learn from some real experts in workplace well-being during that time. But the reality is nobody had all the answers. And, and I kind of knew that nobody had all the answers. And I wanted to, to figure that out a bit more. So I think that was part of what led me to the master's. Now, the truth is I've had an interest in behavioral science for a long time. I'm a bit of a nerd. So I've read lots of psychology and behavioral science and sort of popular psychology books over the years. Um, but I think I had a reflective period as well, because if I go right back to the start of my career, it was in my very early 20s. I, I was 20 uh, when I had my first uh, panic attack. Um, so at the time I was living out of home, um, uh, thinking I was a, a, an adult, um, but of course it, that, that transition from childhood to adulthood takes quite some time. I was working in call centers while studying for an undergraduate degree. And I suffered debilitating panic attacks um, and you can even tell in me even today I, I, I struggle talking about that because back in the 1990s we really didn't talk much about mental health um, uh, how it manifested for me the very first one I had I thought I was having a heart attack um, so I would get pins and needles in my in my fingers I'd then get pins and needles in my face my heart would start beating out of my chest I felt like I was having a heart attack and then I'd start hyperventilating um, but I tried to hide it. Um, I It took me quite a long time to actually find out what was wrong with me. Uh, a few months. Um, in the interim, I went off against J1 summer that a lot of Irish Irish students do. So off I went to America um, with my wonderful friends who, who remain great friends today, waitressing. Um, but I came home early uh, because it got to the point where I was hyperventilating three or four times a day. Now, I was lucky that I did get support. Um, from a wonderful uh, woman who, who sadly passed away a number of years ago, uh, Dr. Anya Tuberty, but she wrote a book called When Panic Attacks. And if anybody listening to this is suffering, I, I would recommend that book. Um, I don't know if the words were used at the time, but it was a combination of cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness. And I always said that I learned to breathe again. Now, of course, I learned so much more than how to breathe again. I learned coping mechanisms. Um, I will always be high trait anxiety. I am high trait anxiety. Mm. Um, but then I hit it. I hit it because I felt really embarrassed. Um, some of my friends were aware of it because I couldn't hide it. I was living with them. Um, some of my friends were not. I would miss quite a lot of social occasions um, at that early age of the 2021, 20, 22. Um, I remember walking out of exams. I, I, I repeated a year. I, I knew the answers. Um, and I walked out because I was about to start hyperventilating. I remember walking out of the cinema. I remember being scared of long car journey, journeys, let alone long, long, long flights. Um, and I think when I managed to get on top of it, it took probably three or four years. Um, and I was very grateful for the family support I had and very grateful for the support I had from professionals. Um, not everybody is, is as lucky as I was to have that support, but that's when I hit it. And around the same time, I sort of graduated, started with my graduate career. 
I had this fear that anybody would find out that in some ways I felt different. Of course, now at this stage in my life, in my mid 40s, I realize not only was I not alone, I'm not alone. Uh, and so many people suffer from mental health difficulties. And mm. one of the things which is wonderful is that I see people talking about it more now. And I think that's really important, um, though I still struggle. Um, talking yeah. about it. But I think that brings me to the career pivot. Um you know, during the pandemic, it was a time of extreme stress. Um, suddenly, mental health came to the fore. Um, and I sort of realized as I became more senior in my career, even prior to that, as I was leading, you know, well-being initiatives and all the rest of it, I really had a sense of duty. So when I had the opportunity to study psychological and behavioral science in LSE, gosh, I threw myself into it. I, I read all sorts of, you know, high-end research papers on anxiety, on well-being, particularly on the future of work and on creating a less stressful, um, more diverse future of work. And I threw myself into it. Um, I didn't, as I said, I didn't expect that to lead to a dramatic career change. Um, mm -hmm. It did. It was through that degree that I met the co-founders of the World Wellbeing Movement. Um, and actually, I'd already started studying some of their work before I met them, uh, which was incredible. So, so they are two leading uh, wellbeing science experts, Professor Lord Richard Layard and Professor Jan Emanuel Deneuve. Um, you could say they, they, they wrote the, the manual on wellbeing science and they actually did. <laughs> no way. But, but they're incredible. And they were looking for somebody to lead the world wellbeing movement. And what they were looking for was somebody whose experience bridged both um, the corporate world, um, because it's a heavy focus on workplace wellbeing, but also the academic world. And so I was very lucky mm. that it was sort of fortuitous, came along at the right time that I had uh, both those uh, elements of experience and, of course, management experience. I'm not in a research role and I think that's really important to say I'm the managing director so so I'm, I'm managing the organization but what I am doing is sharing the, the groundbreaking research that's coming out of um, the University of Oxford and of course so many other institutions as well. And I think it's so nice and, and clear to like to hear your story because you're clearly so passionate about the work that you're doing and obviously spreading that research that that's being done um which is really important obviously but really great to see someone like you you know advocating for it in such a passionate way and tell us so you know the career pivot that you made um how have you found because you went from one world to a completely different world you even moved country right what was that what was that transition like for you <laughs> Gosh, that's a great question, Susan. Um, first of all, I have to say shout out to my absolutely wonderful and incredibly supportive husband, Alan. Um, so when, and of course to all of my family, um, when I even started interviewing for the role, I said to Alan, have a look at this job spec. And he looked at it and he said, wow, this is, this is what you're saying you want to do. This is your dream job. And I went, uh-huh, look where it is. <laughs> it's in Oxford. It's housed in the University of Oxford. And he went, so what? And of course, me being a warrior, what do you mean? So what? Our life is in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> and he sort of said, just apply. You might not get it. And of course, he was right. And 
then I remember I'd come out of interviews and go, oh, no, I think I did well. Uh, <laughs> and he was so supportive. And, you know, when I got offered the role, um, it was very, very obvious that, you know, a lot of the research that we are disseminating to a wider audience is within the University of Oxford. It's really important to me that I sit side by side with the research fellows so that I have a deep understanding of that research, even if I'm not conducting it myself. So we moved. Um, I am high trait anxiety. It has been an emotional roller coaster of a year. Um, I started the job um, nearly a year and a half ago now. We moved full time to Oxford about a year ago. Uh, and we recently moved um, to a lovely town called Woodstock, which is about eight miles outside of Oxford. Um, but definitely it has been an emotional roller coaster. It's mm -hmm. not easy. Um, I've, you know, I, I have been homesick, I've missed family, I've missed friends, but equally, my goodness, I've got to work with and meet the most incredible people. And I wouldn't change it for anything. But I think what I would say is change is hard. We yeah. know it's hard. And anybody mm. going through change, you really have to give it time because there will be that emotional roller coaster of change. And I feel like I'm kind of coming through that now and I'm reaching a place where maybe a little bit of my imposter syndrome is is starting to dissipate. I've definitely had imposter syndrome in this new role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also now we've found the area that we want to live in, there's, you know, such benefits to that as well. Because, you know, within our network, um, I often meet with women and, and men who are at the stage in life where they've been working in a certain area for a number of years, but they they want to do they want to make a pivot and they want to do work that is more in line with their values. And I think we all get to that stage of life at some point. But it's just interesting to hear your story and also advice around the reality of a pivot because it can be hard and and like you said, patience can be required and and change can be difficult. But do you have any other advice for someone who wants to make a pivot and how to maybe go about that gosh I mean look it's a really great question because in some ways my pivot came about quite organically I don't think I planned it as much as maybe others might um mm. the first step was I'm going to do this master's degree and at that stage I was still working full-time in my previous role um and I wasn't thinking about leaving the company I, I I had guilt leaving the company actually I definitely had loyalty to the company I had definitely a certain amount of guilt quite a large amount of guilt in terms of you know my, my my mother who I'm very close to she's fantastic you know she lives by herself now she has a huge support network and my, my brothers are fantastic and you know my parents know as well but we're no longer living around the corner and um, so I had guilt with that um I always felt and I still feel that that's on me it's on me and my husband to go home regularly um and to make sure we're doing that um and also to keep in touch um something yeah. I is I, I I actually send um a postcard or a card every single week just a little something a little little hope that. That arrives in the post um, I think postcards are like the most special thing ever that we don't do anymore aren't they it's it's, I, it's these little things I, you know when we go to pick up the post um it's usually bills and isn't it nice if it's something uplifting that you receive in the post um I think mm. it's the same with text messages as well just mm. reaching to people with, with, with some yeah. but no my my career pivot came about more organically okay. uh, I think everybody's situation is different and and that's why I don't always feel that you know I can give everybody advice because everybody's situation is different but there are maybe two bits of research that 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 I might cite that that I've studied um 
the first one is about salary. We are living in a time of, you know, cost of living crisis and, and you know, a lot of people are struggling to make ends meet. But if somebody is sort of um, mid-career, maybe becoming more senior, um, there is actually study. Now, this study was done in 2010 um, with Daniel Kahneman um, and Angus Deaton. And they looked at, you know, that age-old question, does money make us happy, right? And they found that, you know, yes, there is inequality, um, you know, below a certain income threshold, and we know that, right? But they found, this is in the US, a magic number of a salary of about, a joint income salary of about $75,000. Now, that amount would change for the time we're in and for the country we're in. But what they found was that up to that threshold, actually, there was a slight improvement in, in happiness because, of course, you know, not being able to make ends meet is such a, a detrimental impact yeah. on our well-being. But the gains in happiness beyond that become minimal um, are, are ever decreasing. And so why do I say that? Um, I decided to leave um, a multinational to go for to go to move to a not for profit startup within the academic world. Um, one of the things I had to consider was, am I willing to forgo annual bonuses and long term stock yeah. incentives and all of that kind of stuff? And I think, you know, realizing that helped me. We absolutely still have a mortgage. We absolutely still need to make ends meet. Now, that advice is only relevant for people at a certain level in their career. Um, for others, I think it is really important to say that, you know, yes, you do need to make ends meet uh, and, and that can be tough. Um, I think the other thing that I want to talk about is sense of purpose, because um, Aristotle and the ancient philosophers would have uh, defined eudaimonic well-being as having a sense of purpose, having a sense of meaning of what we do now you know, what gives people that sense of meaning will differ from person to person. Um, but for me, actually, realizing that I come full circle in my career and that I was in a position to support the well-being of people in some way and play some role in that um, gives me a sense of purpose. And, and that has been a real driving force for me in this change. And because I, similar to you, I'm very interested in a lot of the topics that you've just mentioned. And I often you know, read up on, on happiness and, and the pillars to well-being, et cetera. And the more research I do, um, the more obvious that it becomes that a sense of purpose is absolutely fundamental to to happiness. Like, would you agree? Is that does the research back that up? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, and let's go back, I, I guess, you know, the, the sort of thousand pound question, a million pound question, you know, what is well-being? Um, and, and I think, you know, first of all, you know, well-being, you know, we are multifaceted people and there are many different life experiences that, that all feed into our well-being, um, but it is possible to measure well-being and that helps us to define it. And I think that comes to your point because how do we measure well-being? And, and this is something I was really lucky I got to study this during my master's degree. Um, so the sort of most researched and most recognized method for measuring well-being in the general population is subjective well-being. So it, it, it's life satisfaction. So it's asking the question on a scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? And there's been an awful lot of high end research um, that shows that the way in the way in which people answer that 
question is predictive of other elements of their well-being, such as their physical health, their mental health, their longevity. So simply by asking people how you feel about your life, you're actually um, uncovering quite a lot of information about their overall well-being. So that's sort of the ultimate question, the life satisfaction question. And you'll find most countries, not all, but most countries globally now ask a version of that question um, in terms of, you know, looking at the well-being of people. But the UK's Office for National Statistics, the OECD and other agent, other statistical agencies also ask a few other questions. So the, that first question is the most important. If you can only ask one, that's the life satisfaction question. Um, they also ask about positive and negative affect or positive and negative emotion. So your happiness um, and your stress. And they also ask, going back to your question, about purpose, about your sense of purpose. So yes, very much sense of purpose is a component of, of our well-being. What do you think people are struggling with most in 2023 or what does the research show? Look, we, uh, stepping back very, very quickly, I haven't shared, I guess, our mission. Uh, so the World Wellbeing Movement, our mission is to put well-being at the heart of decision making, both in business and public policy. Of course, those are two very different domains. Um, mm -hmm. Look, from a public public policy perspective, um, you know, we believe that all governments should have a minister of well-being, a budget for well-being, and should appraise any potential uh, governmental policies uh, based on the potential well-being impact of citizens. Now, we can think of an awful lot of um, things that, that, that would change if those decisions were made. Um, I wanted to focus a little bit on workplace well-being. Um, so, of course, a large part, part of our mission is around workplace well-being, and, and that's mm -hmm. for a good reason. Uh, most of us of working age spend over a third of our lives in the workplace, and there are so many drivers of our well-being, both in the workplace and out of work. Um, but in terms of within the workplace, um, there's you know table stakes things like are are you know our compensation? Are we paid fairly? Are we earning enough to make ends meet? Of course, that's going to be a driver of well-being, particularly in times like this. Um, Flexibility, I would argue that is now table stakes. Um, you know, if if the, the the great natural experiment of working from home has taught us anything, it's that we can. Um, however, equally, um, social connections are really important. So I am a huge proponent of, of hybrid working. Um, I don't believe that anybody has the answer to the question of what is the optimal number of days in and out of the office, but autonomy is a driver of our well-being. Um, and you know, employee voice is a driver of our well-being. So having some say in what days you are in and out. Um, manager support my goodness no matter how brilliant the company you work for culture cascades from from your manager um uh which can often be very different difficult for new people managers i mean certainly when i first became a people manager i made a ton of mistakes um and i think it's so important that people managers are given training and support so that they can effectively support you know the people who report into them um Belonging, inclusion and belonging, such a key driver of our well-being at work, um, particularly belonging really bubbles up um, in the research as being a very, very clear uh, driver of our well-being. Um, is the work we're doing energizing? And I get that, guess that also speaks to that sense of purpose. Um, do we feel trusted? Do we trust the people we report into? Do we feel they trust us? Do, do we have a sense of trust amongst our peers? Are we appreciated and recognized for the work we do? And can't we all think of moments where we worked really hard and never got a thank you? Um, it's so important. And have we got that opportunity to learn and grow? So my own career pivot probably was a bit more dramatic than the average, but the reality is nobody wants to sort of you know 
stay in the same place forever, that they want to be able to have opportunities. Now, I do want to qualify that with nobody should feel that they've got to constantly be striving for promotion. It is perfectly okay to say at this point in my life, I'm comfortable with what I'm doing. I'm happy with the work I'm doing. I'm able to do it. And there's a lot going on in other parts of my life. So I don't want to be constantly pushed towards promotion. But you will find people still want opportunities to learn um, and, and to support that learning. So there are loads of drivers of our well-being at work. Um, mm. And I guess just stepping back quickly, you asked about um, it, or the conversation got to sort of the measurement of, of well-being. Um, so I want to talk about how to measure well-being in the workplace because I think this is really really important and in some mm -hmm. ways if I could make just one change today it would be that all employers across the globe would start measuring well-being but measuring employee well-being with comparable science-based measures um, because you cannot manage what you don't measure so I talked about you know how we measure well-being in the general population and to measure well-being in the workplace we recommend mirroring those four questions so instead of asking about life satisfaction you're asking about job satisfaction which sort of contains it a little bit to the workplace though it is really important to note that of course our well-being is impacted by many facets in our life but also ask about happiness at work stress at work and, and sense of purpose at work and, and by the way on our website we have details of, of those measures and, and working papers with the empirical rationale. But I think it's really important that employers don't just measure how employees are feeling, but they're also measuring why employees are feeling that way. And that goes back to the question you asked about what you call pillars and what I'm calling drivers of mm -hmm. well-being. It's so important that employers measure all of those drivers of employee well-being because it's only by measuring those drivers that they can figure out why employees are feeling as they are feeling and how to improve employee well-being. Um, and and, very, and oh, so, sorry, just one question before you move on there. Is it ultimately, does it come down to culture then in terms of where these employers are falling down? Is it, is it a culture problem? Gosh, what a great question. Um, I have talked previously and I wrote um, an article on the workplace wellbeing paradox. Um, and I think this is very relevant to culture. The workplace wellbeing paradox, as I define it, I, I gave a keynote at the World Happiness Summit in, in March, um, where I talked about this. Really, I would define it by saying that we're seeing a huge increase in the investment in employee well-being by companies across the globe. Now, that's obvious by a number of things. You can look at Google search trends for the phrase employee well-being over the past decade. You can look at um, the rise in you know, job titles of chief well-being officer, director. Yeah, I definitely noticed more well-being job titles. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, awards and publications on employee well-being. So there's definitely an increased investment. Simultaneously, we're counterintuitively seeing an increase in the indicators of employee stress and unhappiness. So Gallup tells us that employee stress is at an all-time high. The McKinsey Health Institute tells us employee burnout is at an all-time high. CIPD report that one in eight employees feels miserable, miserable at work. So what's happening here? If we're investing more in employee well-being, why aren't we seeing those indicators of employee stress and unhappiness improving? Not and, and, and really the reason for that is that there is a disconnect. So you asked about culture. And what I'm seeing all too often is a disconnect between well-being benefits and company culture. 
And so that I think is key. I always say that you cannot simply treat well-being in isolation. Um, you have to take a holistic approach and your well-being benefits absolutely must align with company culture. And um, to give you just a few examples of the disconnects that I see. So, you know, we see a lot of, you know, mindfulness um, app subscriptions, mindfulness classes, yoga classes. Now, they are science-based, don't get me wrong, but they require adherence um, to actually be successful. Um, if you look, um, if you're if you see that companies are rolling out these things and actually very few people can either attend at all or can only attend sporadically, that's straight away an indicator of, of a disconnect. If there are wellness uh, talks, lunchtime wellness talks being hosted and actually the room is half empty because most people have an unmanageable workload, that's evidence mm. of a disconnect. If a company offers paternity leave and new dads either don't use it, don't take it up or don't use all of their eligible paternity leave, that's an example of a disconnect because is there a cultural issue there that new dads are thinking that they might get overlooked for promotion if, if they take that time off? Um, you know, we're seeing the four day week being trialed a lot. That's not going to be successful if managers continue to send emails out of hours in the evenings at weekends expecting an immediate response. I mean, there are so many examples of a disconnect between mm. wealth benefits and company culture. And I really feel that the first thing any company needs to do is, is align that. So I strongly feel that whoever has overarching responsibility for well-being in a company should report directly to the CEO. Uh, I also strongly feel that um, you know, the C-suite should actually have actions themselves focused on on employee well-being and I would agree there's a lot a lot to unpack there but something that I've seen a lot is companies talk a lot about flexibility and, and how they encourage it and promote it and the leaders in the organization don't lead by example so they not they might not take the flexibility and work five days a week in the office and then other people don't feel comfortable to do so and then the other one that I've seen look I think you can have all the well-being benefits in the world like yoga and talks and free food and the big tech companies but I think when you actually go back to the company's values and the behaviors if they're not if, if they're not being like really authentic I, I feel the rest kind of falls apart because I, I I think it really comes back to those core values. Are people do people actually believe in these values? Are everyone living by these values? Otherwise, I, I think it just gets a bit messy. Would you agree? Oh gosh, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I one of the things that that I do to try and uh, go beyond the echo chamber, I suppose, with getting the academic insights to a wider audience is I host my own podcast, uh, the Working on Wellbeing podcast by the World Wellbeing Movement. And uh, one of the uh, episodes I really enjoyed was I interviewed um, Andrew Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart, who are the co-founders of the Four Day Week. And they said that when they roll out the Four Day Week in a company, the most important people to adopt it are the C-suite. Because if the C-suite are not leading by example, to your point, you know, culture cascades, right? Mm. Um, so, so, so I strongly, strongly believe in that point you made. Yeah. And tell me, you also, something else I wanted to unpack there, you mentioned inclusion and you also mentioned belonging. Can you explain the difference between the two for people? Because I, I, Great question. I, I think the word belonging is now being focused on far more from what I can see from employers. Um, so just interested to get your take on that. 
what I now like to talk about, and I, I'm 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 pinching a phrase here, by the way, from from Indeed. I'm sure other companies use this as well. Indeed are are one of the founding members of the World Wellbeing Movement, and they talk about DEIB plus plus. So diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, diversity is you know have you got a diverse mix of, of people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, gender, sexual orientation, etc. But creating an environment of diversity alone is certainly not enough inclusion starts talking about you know are, are people included and given a seat at the table at an equal level um but just because you have a seat at the table doesn't mean you feel a sense of belonging at that table and i think that's really key um i think most of us can think about a time where we didn't feel a sense of belonging um and it's sometimes easier to define in that way um when you've been in a group of people and you felt somehow different um or you felt that maybe you have a fear of of sharing your own voice because you might be um you might be intimidated imposter syndrome all of that stuff um there's a lot of great academic research and interventions out there and a lot of literature around driving particularly diversity and inclusion um and one book i'd highly recommend is what works gender equality by design by iris bonnet um there are many other books as well and, and many wonderful research papers and interventions on how to drive diversity and, and inclusion um belonging um we're now starting to see more and more in that regard. Um, the person I would very much point to is Professor Amy Edmondson. Um, Professor Amy Edmondson, many of you will know the name because she uh, is very much associated with psychological safety. Um, so uh, I did have a podcast with Amy Edmondson as well, so I recommend listening to that. But Bad. psychological safety really is about that each and every person feels they have a voice, feels that they can share their opinions, their ideas, their criticism, their mistakes without fear of recrimination. And that's really, really key. I think psychological safety plays a really key component in belonging, but it's not everything. Um, you talked about the free lunches and, you know, there were the sort of um, offices of the, the early 2000s that were bright, clashing primary colors. And we now know a lot more about neuroscience and we know that for neurodiverse talent, um, walking into an office with lots of bright primary colors and lots of activity can be quite overwhelming for the senses. So there's quite a lot of really interesting research about the design of office interiors um, to be more okay. inclusive. Um, and that, that itself helps with the sense of belonging. Um, you know, I remember, um, and so one of the uh, interventions that I've seen that I really like uh, was Accenture. Um, they had, I don't know if you've come across their Women on Walls project, but they were responding to the fact that so many uh, paintings uh, within public and private sector buildings were of white men. And so what they did was they commissioned a series of, of paintings of wonderful, you know, women, entrepreneurs, inventors, etc., um, who had achieved great things and, and got them up in the arts of various public and private, on the walls of various public and private sector buildings. Now, of course, this goes far beyond gender, um, you know, whether it's naming your, your uh, meeting rooms. So if your meeting rooms are named after famous entrepreneurs, well, make sure that they are representative of the ethnicities, the gender, et cetera, of your employee base. Um, so, and I think flexibility is key as well, of course. Mm. You know, we, we've talked about flexibility. The reality is that we are all different. And 
I feel that the pandemic shone the light on a new type of diversity, and that is diversity of home circumstance our home circumstance difference. You know, some people might be parents, some people might not be parents, some people might be caring for elderly parents, some people might be living by themselves, some people might be living with um, flatmates. And I think um, it's really important to offer flexibility. Somebody who might be living with four flatmates might much prefer to go into the office every single day mm. to get that peace. Somebody who might be living by themselves might prefer to get that balance. Um, but really making sure that we're providing that flexibility, um, you know, for people to support different aspects of their lives, particularly when they're kind of in that caring section of their life as well. Because the reality is that's when companies are losing all this top talent. Um, because people have, you know, priorities outside of work that that affect their life um, and career is a part of our life. So tell me, do you have any, what are the benefits of flexibility or say there's an employer listening to this who fully doesn't understand, you know, why do I have to offer flexibility? Um, can you just list out like what some of the actual benefits are? I mean, it, it's a great question. I, I would worry if we had an employer listening <laughs> <laughs> thinking yeah, yeah, yeah. Have to offer flexibility because in some ways it's self-evident but I am going to go beyond that uh, and I'm actually going to talk about the benefits of improving employee well-being altogether so flexibility is one driver I mentioned all of the other drivers as well um, what I think is really important is that actually improving employee well-being comes with a very strong business case. So if I were talking to a cynical business leader who sort of said to me, oh, you know, times are hard. I don't have time to invest in employee well-being or to focus on employee well-being. I've got to focus on the bottom line. My response to that would be, well, there's a lot of high-end academic research which now proves that if you can improve employee well-being, you can improve the bottom line metrics that matter to businesses. So whether that be productivity, talent attraction or retention, or even financial and stock market performance. Um, and I want to share just two of those um, research studies at a very, very high level. Um, but the first is productivity. Um, so one of the co-founders of the World Wellbeing Movement, uh, Professor Jan Emanuel Deneuve, um, led a, a research study uh, in BT, um, which was uh, looking at call center employees across a number of different call centers in the UK, they were polled weekly for six months to ask them their happiness on a weekly basis for six months. And the research team actually correlated that with the various individual performance metrics of the call center. And having started out my own career in call centers, I know that they track everything. And they were able to determine at a causal level that a happier employee is about 12% more productive. So that's the first thing. That's the first causal field evidence we have that a happier employee is more productive. There's further evidence, and I won't go into these studies around talent attraction and talent retention, but very quickly, um, the stock market performance piece, I think, is very, very powerful indeed. So so um, the, uh, one of our founding members of the World Wellbeing Movement is, is indeed the recruitment company. They have their Indeed Work Wellbeing score, which asks a lot of those questions I talked about earlier. So asking about how employees are feeling, but also all of those drivers to determine why they're feeling that way. Um, over 15 million employees across the world have now responded to that survey. Um, and the research team at the University of Oxford took all of those responses 
And they focused for this piece of research on only those um, responses for companies who were US stock listed companies. Why stock listed? Well, because of course, stock listed companies are required to report all of their financial data in a very systemized and standardized way. So that meant that they were able to actually take that um, sort of employee happiness data and track it um, against those metrics. And um, they did something which was really, really interesting was they wondered, imagine if they could create a stock portfolio comprised only of the happiest companies to work at. So what they did was they took the top 100 companies who had the highest work well-being score based on that survey, and they created a sort of fictitious, I suppose, stock portfolio. And then they sat back and let the market do its thing. And what was really interesting was, if you look at the stock market for the past three years, um, in 2021, there was a bull market, so the market went up. In 2022, there was a bear market, so the market went down. And the 2023 market has been uh, a lot more volatility. Now, what was really interesting was this stock portfolio comprised of the happiest companies to work at um, actually outperformed in both that bull market and the bear market and the volatility of the 2023 market against all of those standard uh, stock tracker indices. So what is this telling us? Well, this is telling us that if you can improve employee well-being, actually there is a strong business case for your bottom line. So I, I always think it's myopic um, when I see companies saying, oh, they've pulled back on all of these employee, whether they call it employee engagement activities, employee well-being activities, diversity, inclusion, and belonging activities, which of course are a key driver of employee well-being. It's myopic. Because actually, if you can continue investing in that and doing so in such a way that it is integrated with company culture, again, I will reiterate, you cannot treat well-being in isolation. Um, there is a strong business case for companies. And it has a direct impact on business performance. Yes. And it just goes back to what we were saying earlier, but if it proves that it's not a, it's not, it's certainly not a nice to have. It's a, it's a key metric for success, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And do you find, just going back to the drivers of well-being, do you, does the research show, is there a big difference between men and women or what does that look like? It's a great question. I think the reality is that we are all diverse um, and different drivers will impact different people more or less. Gender certainly plays a role. Other things play a role as well. You know, age, um, you know, where you are in your career, um, et cetera, et cetera. The industry you're in, there's a lot of variables at play here. Um, but um, I would need to talk to the research team to get the exact answer to your question. Yeah, yeah. Anecdotally, you will find that that sense of belonging is probably more likely, I would hypothesize, it's more likely to bubble to the top uh, for, for women. Um, but what I would say is the research is showing that that sense of belonging is certainly a very, very key driver. Yeah. And and say, for example, to so strip it back from the employer, say I am a team manager and responsible yeah. for X amount of people. What can I do as an individual to build a sense of belonging, even in my team? Are there any kind of pieces of advice or any tips or pieces of advice? Because each individual, as you've already said, is very different. We all have different needs. Yeah. But but what can a manager do to increase that sense of belonging on a team? Look, I couldn't, I, I think it's a really important question. I, I would start by saying that I don't believe 
that managers, people managers are given enough training at the moment. Um, I think, honestly, I think there's a social norm that needs to be addressed. Um, I'm seeing it addressed in the technology industry a lot more um, that the social norm seems to be that in order to get a pay rise, in order to get the next job title, you maybe need to at some point in your career start managing people. Not everybody wants to be a people manager and that's okay. And I think, you know, this is my own hypothesis, but I certainly feel that the role of the individual contributor really needs to be more revered. Um, and I know some people who are in individual contributor roles who are really happy and really make a huge strides. It's something I've seen in the technology industry where they now have uh, the, the principal engineer, um, which would be sort of the equivalent of the of, of the vice president uh, type role. So it's a different path that you can go down. Um, and I, I I preface that it's a it's a bugbear of mine that all too often somebody's getting promoted to be a people manager because they're a brilliant accountant or they're a brilliant software engineer or a brilliant project manager, whatever it is, just because you're a brilliant accountant does not mean that you are going to be instantly brilliant at leading a team of accountants. Because they're completely different skill sets required. <laughs> completely different skill sets. So, so that's the first thing. Actually, asking the question, does everybody need to be a people manager? Now, we know the answer is no, uh, but we need to change the social norm because there needs to be a very clear career path for individual contributors where they can still have those promotions if they want them. And of course, not everybody does want them, you know, at certain times in their lives. Um, I think the second thing is we need a lot more manager training. Um, so, uh, look, I remember quite early in my career when I first became a people leader and I was given no training. I may have been and I'm not going to say what company it was in, but this is quite a long time ago. Um, but I was maybe told how to approve an annual leave request on the workday system. Um, <laughs> really, that's not the most important thing about people management. And you know, you're thrown in the deep end. Uh, I think most people managers do make mistakes. I've made a ton of mistakes. Um, you learn through your mistakes, but wouldn't it be brilliant if we were given much, much better training if that is the career direction that we want to go in and it's not the career direction for everybody. So to answer your question, the first thing I would say to new people managers is seek out that training. Go to senior, senior leadership, ask what training is available. If the training isn't available in your company, look externally as well. There are so many great online training resources as well. But I do think it's really important that you're aware of treating those people who are working remotely or in a hybrid fashion equitably with those people who are coming into the office every day we all have biases we know that we've all sorts of unconscious biases you know one of those biases will be um you know that we will see more of those people who are sitting right in front of us that doesn't mean they deserve the promotion any more than the person who's working from home so I think just being aware of that is the first thing ensuring that you create that environment of psychological safety so you are reiterating to people that you want to you genuinely want to hear their ideas you want to hear their critique because let's be honest, there is no manager on the planet who knows all the answers. And I think one of the difficulties with a new manager is you think you're supposed to know all the answers. You're mm -hmm. not, you won't. Um, so you need to be hearing people's opinions because your team will have people who are more experienced than you are. You want to encourage them to share, share their mistakes, share their critique. So creating that environment of psychological safety is so key. Um, but overall, seek that training. And the other thing I want to just touch on, you mentioned connection. So yes. connection is super important. We all know. And in terms of our own happiness, we all need connection as human beings. 
So with the new world of hybrid work and remote work, I I see a lot of people feeling super disconnected, even though they want this hybrid work. And but there is this downfall of of the disconnection and disengagement. How do we address this or what's the solution to this? And, and all of the research I've read certainly points to the importance of social connection. I, and I might actually highlight two wonderful books. Um, one is uh, The Good Life uh, by Robert Waldinger and Mark Skultz. Um, that provides insights from the world's longest study of, of, of happiness. Um, it was, I believe it's 80 years they've been following the lives of a cohort of people and their children. And actually this book brings into play uh, insights from various other similar longitudinal studies uh, from across the world. And the single biggest finder that this book finds, and spoiler alert if you haven't read the book yet, is the importance of social connectedness to our health and well-being. Um, a really, really brilliant book. Um, another book that I recommend is a book by The Rabbit Effect by Dr. Kelly Harding. Dr. Kelly Harding, wonderful woman. She was also a guest on, on the Working on Wellbeing podcast. Um, the title of the book comes from an experiment which predates Kelly. Um, it, Kelly, Kelly, Kelly um, would be my, my sort of vintage. Um, but when she was training as a, a physician, she worked on the front line of, of emergency psychiatry. And she noticed that some people um, back in her A&E days, I suppose, were recovering from illness a, a lot quicker than actually they should be if you look at maybe the traditional markers of well-being like BMI or maybe any underlying illnesses, et cetera. Um, and she couldn't figure out why. And one of her mentors told her about some studies that were carried out with rabbits back, back in the 1970s. Um, and so these were the type of studies which I assume would not be allowed to, to, to carry out now. There are obviously ethical concerns about testing on animals, but this was in the 70s. Um, and, and what they were doing was they were testing various cholesterol drugs. So they were feeding rabbits with a high cholesterol diet. Um, but what they observed was there was one cohort of rabbits who was not developing heart disease the same way that the other rabbits were. And they were a bit baffled because all of the rabbits were being fed the same high cholesterol diet. What they found was that the lady looking after this one cohort of rabbits was not just feeding the rabbits, she was petting the rabbits and talking to the rabbits and showing the rabbits love. And so the rabbits had that social connectedness. Now, I hope I've done justice to that. Read the book, The Rabbit Effect. Yeah, it's so podcast with her. But to your point, social connectedness, we know it's really important now. We know that loneliness itself is an epidemic. Um, you know, there are many different types of social connections in our lives, um, but we should look at our workplace as, um, you know, one of those elements of social connectedness. Um, and I'm a huge believer in the importance of flexibility and a huge believer in the importance of hybrid working. But I still see time and time again, the research is showing that the optimal way is hybrid so that you are spending that time getting to know your colleagues, building that social connectedness. Mm. And let's be honest, you know, actually very often the day you go into the office you're less productive you are more productive when you're at home you're doing focus work there's no interruptions but it's not necessarily about that when you go into the office you're getting to chat to your colleagues you're getting to build that personal social relationship to understand each other better and of course that's enriching enriching your life as well and um, I caveat all of this with employee voice is key so I don't think the answer is to mandate you must all be in on this exact same you know day or two days a week um, but rather take a democratic a democratic discussion uh, with your full team uh, to see what might suit most best and to ensure nobody's left 
often in an uncomfortable position. Uh, but yes, um, we should embrace the social connections we mm -hmm. have in the workplace. And I think I was talking, who was I talking to recently? I can't remember. But like you said, work is is one form of connection. But even like when you get your coffee in the morning and being intentional about chatting to the barista, like I find all these things have such an impact on my day and my mood. Um, so I think there's so many different ways to kind of seek out that social connection that we need. Um, on going back to kind of you, I'm conscious of of our time and I could talk to you for, for hours, but in terms of you, you've obviously had your own personal journey with wellness, you know, from back in your earlier days and, and panic attacks to now, like being part of this incredible organization and, and making real impact and, and change, not just in the workplace, but in, in public policy. So what does, and I'd imagine, you know, with that and with your, your own change comes like different types of stress, but what does well-being look like for you as an individual today? And, and, and are there any things that you do on a daily basis that kind of, I suppose, help fill up your own cup? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm still on a journey. Um, I think it's important to say um, uh, I'm learning from all of the wonderful professors and research fellows and all of these books that I'm citing as well. Um, it's a learning journey for me. Um, as I said, I did what I probably shouldn't have done was when I did recover from my panic attacks in my sort of mid to late 20s, I then hid it um, and put that away in the skeleton's wardrobe. Um, and I only took that skeleton out of the wardrobe quite recently. Um, and I still have difficulty sharing that. But actually, I think in sharing it, um, I know that, you know, others have come to me and shared their experience. So so first of all, that is a part of well-being is, is acknowledging you know, I'm, I haven't, you know, been without suffering myself and, you know, many people suffer way, way worse, but just acknowledging that, um, going easy on myself a little bit. Um, I am high trait anxiety. Um, I hate the word perfectionist, but I think a lot of us do fall into that bucket and I have to sometimes take it easy on myself in that regard. But there are things that I try to do every day. Um, I don't always achieve it every day, but I try to, that really help me. Um, one is getting out in nature and walking. Um, so I mentioned to you that my husband and I recently moved house. Um, I, I grew up in, in, in the countryside in, in Kildare, um, beside a beautiful forest. Um, I think I'm probably most at home out in nature. Um, I love hiking. I love getting out to the countryside. So we are now living in a more kind of country area, um, trying to do a walk most days where we can. Um, I think keeping that contact with family and friends back home is really important to me. I may currently be living in the UK, um, but, you know, an awful lot of my friends and family are in Ireland. So really keeping that connection there and going back regularly. Um, I'm very, very grateful to my husband, um, who's an incredible support and very lucky. I have a lot of gratitude um, to him. But something we do um, most evenings, we try to do it every evening. Sometimes we forget. But most evenings is we say, what are the three things we're grateful for today? Um, now, I know some people do that as a journal exercise. And if you do it as a journal exercise, you can look back on it. But for me, I found it to be a wonderful bonding Thing to do with just a conversation with my husband day to day so it's often by the end of the day when we're heading to bed that we'll have this conversation um sometimes I do not feel like saying I'm grateful for anything because I'm yeah. my, my inner reptilian um is just having a moment and I find it grounds me as well if I'm struggling um with my own anxiety maybe with negative thoughts 
actually focusing on the things I'm grateful for that day is really, really helpful. Um, so I'm also very grateful to all of my friends and family and the support they give me. Um, so, but yes, what I would say is I haven't got it all figured out and I'm on my journey. And I also thoroughly enjoy reading all of these research, you know, research papers and books and, and hearing from the experts. And I think, I think that's, well, thank you for being vulnerable and for saying that, because I think a lot of us struggle with anxiety and, and different things. And, and often it's not really spoken about. And I think anxiety, you know, can manifest in different ways for different people. Um, but I think there are some really great tips. And I, I, and I think, you know, the gratitude, I'm, I'm a big advocate for practicing gratitude and I would do it more in a, in a journal, um, form. But I think what I've learned is it actually, it just makes you search for things as opposed to like, you know, going through your day and, you know, that day was fine, like whatever, nothing really happened. Whereas if you actually start looking for the good things that happened, it's very easy to forget, you know, that great call that you had or that connection that you had at lunchtime or whatever it may be. So I think um, I'm definitely, I'm definitely echo the, the gratitude. Yeah, piece, I, I, I 100% agree. And I think when we reflect, a lot of us know that there is a lot going on in the world at the moment. And, you know, obviously, I feel very lucky um, to have my health, to be living in a country uh, which is at peace. Uh, many mm -hmm. countries in our world are very sadly not at peace at this time. To have a job that I derive purpose from and meaning from, um, to have an income that I can make ends meet, I can pay my bills, to have a roof over my head. There's an awful lot to be grateful for. And when our inner inner chimp runs away with itself, um, uh, Ariana Huffington calls it our obnoxious roommate uh, living in our head, um, it can be a nice way to reground ourselves and remember everything we have to be grateful for. And sometimes I am grateful for the really big things, uh, those mm. things I just mentioned. Sometimes I'm just grateful that I had a really nice walk and I took a photograph of some nice bluebells um, or something. Yeah, really well, that's it, isn't it? It's often in the small, the small things. Um, and is there any, firstly, like, thank you. I, I love the research and the, the academia side of things because it, well, it's it's just nice to hear that evidence and and proof of some of these theories and and feelings. But is if you were to leave us with kind of one or anything at all, um, any tip or advice or I don't know something that you're excited for yourself. Um, is there anything that you'd like to share? Gosh, um, if I was to leave you with one tip, um, I think actually it would be for any business leaders listening and it really really would be to start measuring employee well-being um because i feel that that is going to be the start of the positive change that we will see in the future of work um the minute you start measuring anything you start to take action you see that you need to take action um so i just would like to encourage um employers across the world to start measuring employee well-being and start measuring employee well-being using comparable metrics um and yeah hopefully that will lead to the change we want to see in the world yeah i think that's the perfect place to end um and i think we've already shared some great tips on how to start measuring earlier on in the conversation um so thank you so much for sharing first of all for sharing your own personal story and journey um, and secondly, 
everything, all of the research and the books, I was kind of scribbling down some of the books there um, and the different perspectives and, and, and examples that you've seen um, work and not work. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. Um, and yeah, just really grateful for your time. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Susan. And, and what an honor to be invited on. And, and thank you for the incredible work that, that you're doing as well, uh, which really is inspiring so many. Thank you, Sarah. Thank <laughs> you.